0: I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and I welcome you, happy warrior, to this show. It's not that easy being a happy warrior right now, is it? Um, Many, many people, uh, most of us, I would say, uh, are coping with the coronavirus outbreak as warriors, right? We're not folding up our tents and surrendering, no. No, we are warriors. We're, we're doing everything we can to cope and survive and perhaps even to thrive. Uh, to remain happy warriors is uh, even more of a challenge. But I think it helps to remember that, uh, first of all, happiness is a decision we make. It's not contingent on external circumstances at all. An older woman I met in New York a few years ago had survived the Nazi concentration camps during World War Two, and she was a young girl. She was uh, less than 10 years old uh, when she was in the camp, when she was taken to the camp with her mother. Her mother did, obviously did not make it. And uh, I asked her to uh, to tell me a little bit about it, and what I heard her say was really rather remarkable. She said that uh, her mother said, that even in these conditions, which we have never been able to imagine, nothing in our previous lives could in any way have prepared us for the horror and barbarism that we witness each and every day in these camps. But uh, even here, our purpose is to be happy and to produce and contribute to the happiness of other people and she said mommy i'm i'm 8 years old what what can i do and she said your job is to walk around at all times that you are awake you must have a smile on your face that's your job and she says that's what kept her alive that's what kept her going she had a purpose she had a job and she says in hindsight, looking back now, she knows she really did make a contribution to see a little girl skipping with uh, with a smile on her face, even if she was starving and even if deep inside she was weeping for what was happening. But in some way, people's lives were improved by that. And so, uh, yes, uh, being happy is something that we can decide to do. Uh, The situation is what it is. There are certain things we can do, and I'm going to talk about them in this show, and uh, there are a whole lot of things we can't do anything about, but we can be happy. So, what are the, the 10 timeless tips, tools, and techniques for tough times? Well, of course, each person can come up with their own list, but to the best of my ability, I used the resources of ancient Jewish wisdom uh, to provide uh, 10 specifics. Number one, and uh, this one is number one for a reason, and that is become a generalist. You've got to start now to train yourself to be a generalist. Now, this goes entirely against everything you believe, everything you know, certainly everything I have taught which is that in order to most effectively serve other people, uh, in order to most effectively create a career serving other people, which is the surest way of making sure that you will earn money, uh, you need to specialize. Anybody who sets out in life to become everything to everyone uh, is not going to succeed at all. There is that wonderful quote, from John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. And he's, uh, he's speaking about a character who plays a minor role in the novel. And here's what Steinbeck says about him. The guy's name was Alf, probably short for Alfred. Alf was a jack of all trades. Carpenter, tinsmith, blacksmith, electrician, plasterer, scissors grinder, and cobbler. Alf could do anything And as a result, he was a financial failure, although he worked all the time. Isn't that incredible? It's it's so well put. And that's exactly right. Specialize, specialize, specialize. You've got to find the one best way that you can serve other people in your orbit. And so, There is no question about that. I've spoken about it. I've taught it in the context even of why it is that Jacob spent 30 verses giving separate blessings to each one of his sons at the end of the book of Genesis. Instead of simply saying, you know, boys, it's been an honor to be your father. Some of you have been a giant pain in the neck. Take care of each other. I'm going home to the Lord. Goodbye. One verse. That's how I could have done it. uh, jacob took took 30 verses and then at the end of deuteronomy moses does the same thing with the 12 tribes right the entire chapter giving a separate why because if each let's put it this way one of the great things that parents want to see is their children loving one another and taking care of one another helping one another that's what parents want to see that's also what our father in heaven obviously wants to see one of the surest ways of doing that. Is to make sure that your children all need one another, and uh, specialization is the surest way of making sure that uh, each person is needed. If uh, Alf, who could do everything, Alf just you know took care of all his own needs, so he didn't use anybody else, and you would have think you'd think to yourself, well, that's an advantage in this world, isn't it? not to be able to not to have to use anybody else? No, it's a terrible idea, because it means that you never get really good at any one thing. And only by getting really good and finally reputation famous, that, that, there's, that's the value in it, where people recognize that you have achieved professional status in whatever it is you do, I had my shoes polished. Uh, well, it was uh, what happened was we were at uh, Union Station in Washington D.C. We had to catch a train. There wasn't a single chair to wait to. <laughs> everything was fully occupied. The only chair I found I saw empty was at the uh, at the shoe shine in Union Station. And so I immediately decided. Well, I'm going to get a shoe shine, and up I hopped. And there was a chair, another waiting chair there that uh, Susan Lappin took. And we thought, you know what? As as long as the shoe shine takes, at least we'll sit, and then after that, we'll head to the train. Well, I must tell you, the man's name was Kevin. And uh, did we have an interesting—well, I, I hope he found it as interesting as I did. I found it interesting but because I realized I was talking to a highly trained professional. I was talking to somebody who knew more about shoes than I ever would. Um, and he was telling me some of the things he could tell about people and shoes just by looking at them. And I smiled and I said, I, you are a professional. There's no question about it. Um, and I'm honored to have you do my shoes. I appreciate it. So anyways, that, uh, that that's how the world works. If Kevin would have spent his mornings doing uh, cooking for one of the restaurants and the afternoons doing shoe shining, he wouldn't have been particularly good at any of them. But this way, uh, he was extraordinary. All of which is by way of telling you and explaining that uh, in normal times and for purposes of earning a living, specialization is the way to go. However, for, a, uh, for managing tough times, you have to be a generalist. There was a Scottish author, his name was J.M. Barry, and uh, he wrote Peter Pan. He died just before World War II. But a few years before he wrote Peter Pan in the early years of the twentieth century, he wrote a play called The Admirable Crichton. And I would definitely recommend that you know about this play. Um, it's it you just you don't see it put on the stage that much these days. And uh and that's a shame, I think, but the, the point of the plan, I'm going to tell it to you now, it's worthwhile knowing about because it's very much what we're discussing. So, you know, set in uh, pre-World War I England, and um, Crichton, C-R-I-C-H-T-O-N, Crichton, uh, is the name of the butler of an aristocratic family, okay? Uh, it's the, I think his name was the Earl of Loam. And he was a British aristocrat, and he, you know, with his wife and daughter, living a very privileged life in London, upper crust. And Crichton is the butler, and um, and and the butler knows his place, of course, and uh, and you know, there's several, there's several incidents that take place during the the first part of the play that shows that uh, they're they they are good to to Crichton but he's the servant They you know he's the downstairs they're the upstairs it's as simple as that Um, however finally uh, we get to the, the 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 drama of the play and what happens then is that and it's not important how this came about but Uh, The Earl of Loam and his family and some friends, they were on a a little ship journey. They got shipwrecked on a deserted island, a desert island somewhere, and they land on the island, and guess what? The Earl of Loam and his wife and his daughters and all their upper crust friends are totally without any resources. They literally do not know how to do anything about shelter. That none of them have ever caught a fish or cooked a meal. None of them know anything about how to make a fire. And all of a sudden, Crichton, the former butler, emerges as the res the resourceful guy here, who is the only one with any practical knowledge. And uh, he, they all start turning to him automatically. He he emerges as a leader. And you know, I've often spoken about the way that uh, leadership is defined. And uh, I, when I was writing Thou Shall Prosper, I went to the trouble of asking the heads of a number of famous business schools around the world for their definition of what is a leader. And they all gave various definitions. Some of them were clever, but none of them were actually useful. Uh, in the final analysis, I believe that the Rabbi Daniel Lapin definition of a leader is the only one that is 100% true and actually useful. You want to know what a leader is? A leader is somebody who has followers. End of story. That's all it is. Um, and it, it happens organically. It happens on a spiritual level where people feel drawn to your leadership. Then that is what's going on. Well, you watch this thing happening during the play. Uh, there they are on the on the island and little by little they all start turning to the butler to Crichton for for guidance what they should be doing how they're going to eat and Crichton organizes and begins to play the role of a leader not trying to at all because deep in his heart he is a butler but um, this is this is what uh, he does Um, he's the only one who's able to create a reliable food supply which he does and they're all very happy to to follow his lead uh, you know and time goes by they're on this island for a couple of years i think and uh, what happens is Crichton has taught them how to build houses and he's taught them how to how to do agriculture and um and and the funny thing is that he is now treated the way his former master, the Earl of Loam, used to be treated, and it's it, it so elegantly does J. M. Barry invert the social relationships that you know little by little the Earl of Loam becomes the person who takes orders from Crichton in terms of you know how to grow stuff and and how to find water and do all these things, and um, and then. At a certain point, at a certain point, uh, a ship shows up to rescue them. And if I remember correctly, only Crichton was aware of that, I believe, and he had a moment and you can see this with a good actor, this was a pleasure to watch. you can see Crichton going through internal turmoil. Does he really want to be rescued? And go back and resume his downstairs status as the butler to the Earl of Loam, if he just does not reveal to anybody that the uh, that there is a ship, um, they'll stay there and life for him is is pleasant. Uh, he's about to marry the Earl of Loam's daughter, which is preposterous in London. Right, the Earl the Earl of Loam's daughter used to be engaged to some Lord Brockleby or something back in London Brocklehurst, back in London. And uh, and here she's she's proud and happy to marry <laughs> to marry Crichton. So for him there's every reason to stay right where he is. Um however, the uh, honourable Crichton, or the admirable Crichton as the title of the play is, reveals his presence the signals the ship, and everybody is rescued. And uh, as soon as they're rescued, as soon as they're back on the ship, Crichton resumes his status as a butler. So in times of crisis, you want to be able to be a generalist. And how does that serve us? Well, for one thing, Um, it means that you're able to do many of the things uh, yourself. And and it's not a bad time to learn. If you're not, by nature, a generalist, then use something like video trainings available on the internet. Learn how to change your own uh, car oil. Uh, Learn how to fix your own heating and air conditioning. Um, If the... uh, uh, sometimes the toilet stops flushing because a chain is broken in the tank or a valve isn't right. These things are really simple to repair. You just you know learn how to do these things and become a generalist uh take care of all the little odd jobs around the house that you never have time to get to. There is something very satisfying about fixing something with tools. You might even find that if you don't yet own a toolbox. Uh, now might be a really good time to get a hold of one. So that's all part of being a generalist. More importantly, perhaps, I think it's also very important to know that a crisis can never be fully comprehended by experts and specialists. That you have to know. Um, An infantry commander down on the battlefield might send a message back to headquarters and he'd say the most important thing right now is more artillery you know and and from his point of view he's exactly right meanwhile a naval commander on board a a ship conducting a a battle or a blockade he might send a message back nothing matters more than fuel for our ships we're running out of fuel Maybe in the Air Force, a bomber pilot might radio back to base and say, if we cannot overcome enemy anti-aircraft fire, all will be lost. And now the thankless task of the commander-in-chief is to determine how to allocate resources and where to focus efforts. Each of his warriors told him the truth, but it was the truth of an expert it was the narrow truth of a specialist and for the overall conduct of the war each of those pieces of information is useful but they won't necessarily all be acted upon as they wish it is possible that the commander-in-chief has decided that um, that something is expendable in order to win the war, he might be willing to lose a battle. Um, is preserving life always the most important thing? Well, there was a tragic event in World War II um, that is described. Uh, Churchill's, Winston Churchill's doctor, I think, was the one who wrote about this in his diary, and that is that uh, Great Britain had uncovered the secret of enigma, which was the name of the German coding, military coding device. And working at Bletchley Park, a number of mathematicians and scientists and physicists who later, many of them became famous in other areas. Uh, I believe John von Neumann was there, um, very important later on in, uh, in computing and artificial intelligence. Uh, these guys actually broke the code. And uh, it was without doubt something that significantly shortened World War II. The fact that the Allies, uh, Britain and America, had access to all the German instructions to their commanders in the field. Everything that went from Berlin to the field was decoded at Bletchley Park almost in real time and provided to the British uh, War Cabinet. Well, one of the things they uh, discovered was that uh, on that night or the next night, the city of Coventry was going to be heavily bombed. It was going to be flattened. Uh, the reason was that Coventry uh, was where a number of very important Coventry was a, a place that sort of really took off during the industrial revolution and it 's a, a sort of a wonderful city with many many qualities in the middle of England and um it was going to be destroyed because it was the place where many of the most important manufacturing centers For the war effort were located. And um, they were obviously going to attack the civilian part of Coventry because they decided if they could cause enough havoc there, there wouldn't be people to come and work in the factories. And so this would cause a slowdown in Britain's wartime production. And uh, Churchill, as the commander in chief, had to decide does he order an evacuation of Coventry to save lives or does he stay put? The reason not to do that was that it would immediately identify to German spies that they've broken the code. If out of the blue, just after Berlin uh, notified the Luftwaffe, you're going to be doing a bombing run on Coventry tomorrow night, if at that point the Britain decided to evacuate Coventry, it would have been a clear hint to the Germans that their code was broken and it would set the war back very, very seriously. And I believe it was Lord Moran, Churchill's doctor, if I remember correctly, who wrote uh, how Chir- the tears poured down Churchill's cheeks. He was he was a very emotional guy. And uh, he wept and wept and wept once he had made the decision that he was not going to save Coventry. So lives were lost. Many lives were lost. Um, and it was tragic. But the uh, war was shortened as a result of that. So... Uh, I I mentioned that in the context of this, as I've spoken about in previous shows as well, that you have to be aware that um, specialists see things from a specialist's point of view. I've often quoted um, Jewish psychologist Abraham Maslow. He wrote a book called The Psychology of Science. He wrote it in the early 1960s, I believe it was. And he says um, in the book, he said... uh, Uh, I'm not quoting it word for word, but he says, I witnessed one of the first of an elaborate machine that could automatically wash cars, right? Car wash, today they're very common, but in the 60s they were new. And he said, uh, and I watched cars came to this machine and it did a beautiful job of washing them, but that's all it could do. And anything else that got into the clutches of that machine was treated as if it was an automobile to be washed. Okay, that is, in other words, to a car wash machine, anything that comes into it is a car that needs washing. Uh, And then he finished off by saying, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then it is tempting to treat everything as if it were a nail. And I think it's important to understand that, that right now, Doctors, for whom I have the greatest of respect, with a lifetime invested in their medical careers, they see one truth, just like the uh, infantry commander saw one truth, and the naval captain saw one truth, and the bomber pilot saw one truth. Doctors are seeing one truth about the current crisis. Economists are seeing another truth. Maybe historians see yet another, and so on. Now, you've got to remember that newspapers and television and all other media are absolutely ravenous for content. They just want more material. And they'll happily publish information, whether it comes from, if you like, the infantry, the Navy, or the Air Force. And they'll publish it as the words of an expert, of a specialist. And they're exactly right, it is. But your job as commander-in-chief, of your own life and of your family, well, that's to be a generalist. And you should certainly use data from experts and specialists out there in the battlefield. And your job is not to just take the word of this expert. What sort of leader would you be if you were commander in chief and the, uh, the the naval officer said, "We've got to have fuel." So you immediately reallocate resources of your country to supply fuel to the uh, to the navy. And just then, the infantry commander says, "We've got to have more artillery." And so you stop that and you turn all the factories and all the effort around in the entire war production. You say, "Forget the oil. We got to do we got to do shells and cannons." And then the bomber pilot says, "We need defenses against anti aircraft. We need more machine guns." and you stop the or the production of Canon, and you start going, and you're just jumping from one thing to another as each expert sounds out. That's a little bit like what's going on right now at the time that I'm preparing this show for you, uh, which is the last week of the month of March 2020, of course. And so <coughs> your job, as commander-in-chief, and you are. You're, you, you're a boss of yourself, and you're commander-in-chief. You're responsible for your family. You've got to be a generalist. Not, don't, don't fall into the trap of being a specialist. If you are a leader, and you are because you have people following you, well, you must certainly take the data from the specialists and the experts, but then it's your job to integrate it, combine it, and draw a wise conclusion as to what's really going on out there. And from that point you're in a far better position to determine strategy. But you know, don't email around to everybody you know, every article you see from a doctor, from an emergency room specialist, from an epidemiologist. Okay, you've got to hear what they say, but they're specialists. Um, you hear a politician giving a press conference, and I'm leaving out President Trump in this, in this uh, thing because I do believe history will record, in my view, my view is history will record him as being a very effective commander-in-chief during this corona crisis. But uh, there are a lot of other politicians who are uh, treating the crisis as a means to get more of their lifeblood, camera exposure. And uh, but they're also specialists. They might be trying to win an election. They might be trying to replace the front runner in the Democratic nomination process. Who knows? But they're specialists. And, uh, and so it is. All of these specialists, they all have something to say, but you don't need to treat the statement of any one of them, as if it was something engraved in granite, as if it's tablets from the mountain, no it's to that person invested in his own career, politics, economics, history, finance medicine, whatever it is, it's like a hammer, everything looks like a nail to a hammer, and so to the medical expert, the only solution here is is medical. And to the economist, well, there are other dangers. To the medical guy, the only danger is the virus. To the economist, perhaps there are other dangers. Uh, To the historian, the historian might say, you know, every time there's been unemployment in this country, there's been a huge spike in uh, death rate uh, through suicide, depression. Yeah, let's be aware of that. Okay, so take that information into account and so it is, you define your strategy. So, there you've got it. The first of the 10 timeless tips, tools, and techniques is make of yourself a generalist. Uh, The second one, number two, is remember that today's strategic timeline ends tonight. Now, again, in normal times, we train ourselves and those we are privileged to lead, and the children we may be privileged to raise, we train all of us to not be focused on the present. I mean, how destructive is it, right? You only have to look at the parts of American society, or for that matter, the parts of of British society, uh, that are doing the worst in terms of economic progress, in terms terms of crime, in terms of uh, social behavior, in terms of academic success. You only have to look and you'll see that people who live their life and raise their children to live for today don't do well. They do not do well at all, to say the least. And, uh, and it's obvious. I don't have to spend any time on that. And so we spend a lot of time and we train ourselves to do hard things, Uh, like we give away money to other people with less than ourselves. That's uncomfortable, reaching into your pocket and giving away some of your money. It means less for you. But we do that because we have an obligation to our past and to the teachings of our parents. These things compel us, right? I was raised to not be able to tolerate selfishness to not be able to think of myself with any sense of self-esteem if I don't give away to people who have less and so if I only live for today then who cares what my parents taught me but I don't I live with the past and the future as well as the present and so many things I do because of the past Um, there are other things I do because of the future exercising eating wisely saving money instead of spending money. These are burdensome things. These are not fun things to do, but we do them because we have an obligation to the future as well. So yes, we all do certain arduous things today so that we will be able to do other things that are desirable in five years time. Right? That's that's common. So ordinarily, we, we put a lot of effort and energy into teaching ourselves to not Be focused on today but to be focused on tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and even next decade and uh, and and that's how we live but during tough times there is such a thing also as simply learning how to live with your timeline extending up until tonight you've basically got to get through today you've got to ask yourself or, or let me say, don't ask yourself, if if you would say to yourself, hey, I don't know how I'm possibly going to make this for another three weeks. Or listen, hey, do you know I heard a politician say at a press conference yesterday, this could carry on for 18 months? Idiot. I also heard that politician saying that. Mm, idiot. It's totally non-sustainable for, it's not sustainable for six months, as I've already told you. But anyways, uh, you hear that, You go ahead and believe it because you haven't listened to the show yet, and you say, how am I going to make it for another 18 months? I don't know that I can make this for another two months. That's all wrong thinking. At times of tough times and crisis times, that's a mistake. It can make you feel overwhelmed and hopeless. Instead, what you have to tell yourself is, I just have to get through today. Things are changing day by day, and tomorrow, I'll deal with tomorrow. Uh, there was a, a woman just died uh, a couple of, you know, a few decades ago, not that long ago. She lived in California, but she grew up in Holland. Her name was Corrie Ten Boom, and she wrote an amazing story. Um, a, a wonderful book called The Hiding Place. Is it The Hidden Room or The Hiding Place? I'm so sorry, folks. I should have checked this up uh, more clearly before. But um, anyway, it was about how her family saved Jews in Holland during the World War II. She, a remarkable woman, absolutely remarkable woman. And uh, and I'm sure well known to many of you in terms of the book. Uh, so she says, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow it empties today of its strength and it's very applicable uh, don't worry about tomorrow now if you've done everything you you have to do or everything you can do i mean there's not a whole lot one can do right so worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow but it does empty today of its strength and um, from ancient jewish wisdom when uh, God spoke to Moses at the burning bush in chapter three of the book of Exodus, and He tells him, "Listen, you've got to go to the uh, the Israelites. This is what you tell them. Hey, I'm going to. It's time now to leave Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. I'm going to take you out of Egypt." Moses says, "What name should I use to uh, to tell them who you are?" And uh, and there is a strange passage there in chapter three. Of Exodus uh, verse uh, 13, uh, God says, Well, tell, I will be who I will be. In Hebrew, eh, heyeh, asheh, eh, I will be who I will be. This is a very mystical kind of name. And what does that mean? And ancient Jewish wisdom fills it in and says that actually, um, God said, Oh, you want to know my name? This is what you have to tell them. Tell them, I will be for them here and save them just as I will be for them in other trials, tribulations, ordeals, and oppressions that lie ahead of them in Jewish history. Just as I will be with them for all of those, I will be with them for this. I will be who I will be. Um, And Moses said, God, please leave out all that stuff. There's no benefit in telling the Israelites now of other future ordeals and oppressions that they're going to endure many years into the future ahead. Don't tell them that now. In crisis times, it's enough to deal with today. And God accepted Moses' request and replied, okay, just tell them I will be who I will be. That's all. And that's what that means. Uh, Every day, making it through each day is a triumph. Those of you who've got children at home and you're at the same time worrying about jobs, worrying about finances, you get through the day reasonably cheerfully with everybody being as happy as possible and everybody manages. You know what? Give yourself a great big pat on the back. Try and get a really good night's sleep and tomorrow will be tomorrow. Number three. Tip number three, do your best to insulate yourself from public panic and hysteria. In earlier shows, I've spoken about this as well, but for the sake of completion in my list of 10 timeless tips, tools, and techniques, I I wanted to repeat, insulate yourself from public panic and hysteria. Science can certainly tell what things and what animals will do with a high degree of statistical probability, right? Um, you submerge uh, some copper into an acid and you know what's going to happen. Uh, you train animals and then you give them the stimulus, whether it's a bell or food or a sign, and you know what they're going to do. But science can never predict what people are going to do. If what we as individual people do was as scientifically predictable as as what copper will do in an acid, the entire clothing, fashion industry would be dead, right? Because from a scientific point of view, you need clothing only for shelter to keep body temperature within a safe range. Paying more money for clothes that advertise the manufacturer's label is utterly irrational and unscientific. And so much else of what we do with our money, with our buying choices, so much of that makes no sense from a scientific point of view, which is one of the reasons why economics is really not satisfactorily treated in the mathematics or scientific department. They try and give it a new name, econometrics. The truth is everybody knows that economics is based on human decisions about money and human beings make money decisions for spiritual as well as for scientific reasons. Uh, Look at the whole area of extreme sports. I mean, people do really danger—I shouldn't have said people. Men, males, people who are males in a scientific biological sense uh, tend to do extreme sports, right? People die— from uh, uh, from parachuting off tall structures like antenna towers or skyscrapers, people die from that. That's a lot more dangerous than going to play frisbee in the park. Uh, mountain climbing, like major major mountain climbing, people die from that. Right? People do these things, and um, and so from a scientific point of view. If we were really nothing but animals, then no animal would ever do these things. Why? No animal on earth risks its life for what? A high? That's what people say, right? People do, oh, you can't believe what a high you get from extreme sport. A high is a spiritual term. It means heaven, upwards, right? And people seek highs with drugs, with alcohol. All of these are to satisfy a spiritual yearning am i saying that uh, that if my soul was in good shape i would have absolutely no attraction to crossing oceans in small sailing boats um i'm i'm not going to go there just to entertain you so i'm going to leave the curtain pulled over that part of my psyche and my soul but the point is that we make non-scientific decisions. So obviously, science cannot predict how we're going to behave. Science is a really bad tool for trying to figure out human individual behavior. Figuring out animals, usually no problem. But the one exception is that science can predict what a crowd or a mob of people will do. And the reason is obvious, because a mob of people is not a human being. It's an animal. It really behaves like a multi-headed, multi-footed animal. And animals are largely predictable. And so um, just be aware that you don't want to be part of that mob. It's an important point that the darkest time in Jewish history is said to have been the building of the golden calf. I mean, you know, just think about it, right? The Lord has taken them out of slavery with incredible miracles they've witnessed he uh, took him through the Red Sea with miraculous timing, split the Red Sea, and then made the waters go back and drown out the Egyptian army, and now uh, they've heard the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. <clears throat> How remarkable is that? And then chapter Exodus chapter 32, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, and then came the golden cough, and it was incredibly destructive. There isn't time for me now to go into what the problems are that were caused by the golden calf, but they were huge and reverberate through Jewish history to the present time. So, how did that happen? How did people who had seen so much, had literally been favored by God in ways that had never happened in human history before. How is it possible that just because Moses was late, according to their calculations, that they suddenly perpetrated this mass betrayal, this treacherous act of idolatry? If there was one thing that God stressed when he gave them the Ten Commandments a few weeks ago, he said, no other gods. I mean, that's really clear. And what do they do? They build a golden calf. Now, how does this come about? It comes about because of one very important word in the text. It doesn't just say when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountains, they came to Aaron and said, make us a God that will go before us. No, there's one important word. And the Hebrew word there is the people gathered and then they came to Aaron. That's right, they became a mob. When a crowd gathers, you can see it becoming scary as it begins to acquire mob characteristics. And so that crucial word vayika hal in Hebrew, the the people gathered, that's saying they turned into a mob. Not a single one of those people as an individual would ever have said, "Hey, we should do idolatry." But once it was a mob, it was unstoppable. And that is why we know that Aaron said to them, okay, get the earrings and the jewelry from your, from your families and bring it. He was hoping that the uh, families would say, hey, we're not giving up our jewelry. But by this time, everybody was part of the mob. Why did Aaron not try to stop them and say, hey, you know, Israelites, are you crazy? You've just heard God give the Ten Commandments. You can't, because he knew they'd kill him. That is the feverishness and frenzy and fanaticism that overtakes a mob. And uh, right now, there is mob psychology going on about the virus. And so you must do everything you can to insulate yourself and your family from that panic and that hysteria. It may mean that you should watch less news Listen to less news. That may be what it is. Be very selective in what you listen to because the stuff gets into your head and it becomes very difficult to think really clearly. Please don't, under, don't overestimate your ability to filter out information. Uh, that's not how God created us. We are people who are very, very influenced by things we see and things we hear. We really are. And so the only thing to do is to restrict the amount that comes into your mind, into your soul, into your head, and the amount that comes into your families as well. Maybe it needs to be restricted. Um, Rather, maybe watch a video of the J.M. Barry play, The Admirable Crichton. Rather than watching a newscast or watching another press conference or watching another politician talk or watch another panel of doctors say how this is going to wipe out tens of thousands of people in the United States, it isn't. But for now, I can't go into why I know that. Okay, item number four. Uh, Tip and technique number four, use the time to make new connections. People are actually very approachable now, not in person, but people are very approachable electronically. And so many people, if you think about it, people for either social reasons or maybe for business reasons, people you wanted to make contact with but haven't been able to do, they are much more open during a time of crisis, during tough times than they are ordinarily. So use the opportunity, make a list of the people you want to reach, call them up, send them an email, set up a, a Skype or a Zoom or a Ring Central connection, talk to them, Make use the time to make those connections, they will stand you in very good stead once this is all over, sooner rather than later, and life can begin to returning to what will be the new normal. Won't ever be exactly the same as before, right? Just like 9-11 in the United States of America. Uh, for To a large extent, America did get back to normal remarkably quickly. Stock market came back. People got back. I mean, flying came back. Everything came back. Um, it was really, really rather remarkable. But... Um, Certain things didn't. The, you know, the dreadful TSA as a reality in our lives was created by George W. Bush, and and there it is. Instead of letting each airline handle its own security, uh, this has now created a, a, a new governed bureaucracy that'll last forever, and that's a real shame. Um, I should tell you that, um I had a wonderful opportunity. I was speaking at an economics conference a few years ago in Mexico, and uh, also there, a a far more important speaker than me was the late Sir John Templeton, the creator of the entire Templeton Funds, and surely one of the most legendary and successful investors of all time. And I had an opportunity to talk to him. There were no people around, and uh, And he was alone, so I seized the chance to make the connection, introduced myself, and asked if we can chat. I had some questions I'd like to ask. He was very gracious, very happy to do so. uh, He had a nurse with him at that point who um, was... (laughs) I I just happen to remember noting an extraordinary, uh, attractive-looking and beautiful uh, young nurse who was with him full-time. And um, uh, there it is. It was... uh, I, I think many of the men at the conference thought that there really is an advantage in being a successful investor. So, uh, Sir John Templeton, I'm, he's sitting, and I say to him, uh, "This is this may be a ridiculous question, uh, Sir John. Don't hesitate to just blow it off. If, uh, if, 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 if there's not any answer that springs to mind right away, I'll, I've got other questions. But is there anything that stands out as one of your most successful?" investments on the spur of the moment where you went into something and the reason you went in for worked out it was just a huge so he says yeah I'll tell you exactly what it was he says I went deeply into airline stocks as soon as the market opened after 9 And and uh, I said that's extraordinary uh, how, how did you how did you know and he said something which I, I should have realized myself right away And that was, he said, people are always going to need to do business, and if you're doing business, you're always going to need to meet face-to-face. And that's 100% true. Uh, In the final analysis, we build up a relationship, we build up a sense of trust with somebody when we sit together with them face-by-face, usually over a meal, is a very good and successful technique. And he said, so I knew eventually the market would return. So that was tip number four. Use the opportunity to make connections, either renew connections or make new connections, but uh, it is a good time for doing that. Number five is uh, very short, very simple, very straightforward. Cash is king. Conserve cash to the best of your ability. You don't need me to tell you any more than that. Um, The only thing to, I believe, one should Take into account is that it is possible that at a time of crisis, at uh, troubled times, there may be very good buys to be had. Uh, it is po- whether we're talking about investments or whether we're talking about consumer products, but whatever it is, you might want to be aware that uh, there is no question that in many areas. There are things that could be purchased now for much less than you'll be able to buy them in four or five weeks' time. So now you have to balance it out. Cash is king. You've got to, you've got to conserve your cash. You've got to make sure you have cash. Uh, but if you do have enough and you're not worried... Than to use some of it for purchasing things you were going to purchase down the road anyway, or for making investments at a time when the market has been artificially depressed by the panic and the hysteria. Uh, Again, being very selective and being very thoughtful, but just to be aware. This is a time to think a little bit about cash, conserving and exactly what to use it for. Okay, we're up to um, tip tool and technique number six. Number six is your life and those of your family are more valuable to you than to the authorities. Please be aware of that. It would be nice if we could simply trust and say, don't worry, government is going to take your interests into account. But it's not so simple. Obviously, you place infinite value on your life and that of your family, and so you should. But don't think that government or any of the authorities do the same, and I'm not even going to say they ought to. Uh, I've given the example many times before that if saving or keeping uh, the risk lowest for you and your family, if that is the be-all and end-all, then introduce a nationwide 20-mile-an-hour speed limit and eliminate... 30 to 40,000 road deaths a year in the United States of America. Obviously, government authority has decided 30 or 40,000 deaths a year is okay. And we've elected that government. And obviously, we think now, if a genie popped out of a bottle and said, uh, This is going to impact your family in the coming year, heaven forbid. Uh, now, what do you think about a national speed limit? You may well think very differently. But just know that your calculus about your life and the lives of those you love is very different from the calculus of government. It's not out of the question that a government may decide um, many things that are not in your interests. They may decide... Uh, Well, let's put it this way. Socialism and the Obama health plan uh, unquestionably had what we called death panels. And it's very possible that they either are or will be at work in the next few days in the United States of America, in certain places, maybe the state of New York. It's very possible I don't think it's likely, but it's very possible that the government or the authorities will make a ruling. These are the people who will get ventilators. Everyone's talking about a shortage of ventilators. Again, I'm not buying into the panic and hysteria, not saying it can't happen. I'm not at all persuaded it will. But if it does and there is a shortage of ventilators, is it possible that government will say your grandpa doesn't get one? and somebody else's uh, sister does get one. Now, that's not a decision you'd make. You have every right to want to get every resource possible for your grandfather or your grandmother, your brother, or whatever it is, but that's not the decision authorities make. So, um, just a little skepticism about Government and authorities, your interests are not synonymous, your interests are not congruent, pardon me, wrong word, your interests are not congruent with those of government and authorities. Public health authorities may well decide a certain number of deaths is preferable to doing this or to doing that. There, there may be all kinds of decisions. Those are not necessarily decisions that are in your interest they may be in the interest of what that particular authority deems to be the country, but uh, not necessarily yours. Just be aware of that. Um, Point number seven, tip, tool, and technique number seven. I'm also not going to spend much time on because it will mean different things to different people, and I'm not going to uh, elaborate in, in great depth. But, The tip is very simple and very concise. It's seven simple words. You should be able to defend yourself. You should be able to defend yourself. That's all it is. Uh, You must be able to defend yourself and your family. Once again, uh, do not count on authorities. When I um, was hosting a radio show for a few years on KSFO out of San Francisco, It was a station that was picked up in much of California, and so from time to time I would uh, do appearances in uh, the Northern California area, and I became friendly with a number of people in law enforcement. And uh, they told me something which was, you know, I knew I wasn't going to quote by name, but they had no trouble with me passing it on to my audience, and that is that uh, today in most large cities uh, it is a complete myth that you can dial 911 or any other emergency number to be saved in the uh, in the case of being threatened by bad guys it's a myth he says at the very best we'll try and find the people who killed you he says but we're not doing very well at that either uh in california in general in new york in baltimore in a number of other cities uh, the odds are now better than even that a murderer gets away with a murder. So the idea that somehow all you have to do is dial 911 and everything will be okay, no, that isn't how the world really works. And you probably know this already. So you do need to be able to defend yourself and your family under the uh, the most grievous and serious of conditions. I don't want to go in-depth into what that means because um there are specialists available who will look at your situation or you can look at your situation and weigh it up in terms of what kind of defense you believe. I will tell you one thing that um uh learning karate with a hope of being able to defend yourself against bad guys um <clears throat> I'm uh, you know, I, I love watching contests. Um, I, I think it's a terrific sport. But the the notion that that is an adequate defense today is simply not true. If at the very, I mean, if, if you have no, op- if it's somehow that's what you're going to do, then rather learn to box rather than karate, because it is a contact, it's a contact form of martial arts. Uh, where you're at least trained to make contact and to inflict pain and damage. Um, This isn't a pleasant topic, is it? But um, what is is advisable? Uh, In detail, everybody decides for themselves, but some way of defense. You might decide that a shotgun is your best bet. Uh, you might decide that a uh, 38 special revolver is your best bet. And if you do, you might decide that having the first few chambers uh, loaded with shot ammo instead of uh, bullets, uh, that might be a good idea. It might mean that you would be less reluctant to pull the trigger at a time you really need to and should. And again, without training... It is very, very difficult for an ordinary civilian to be able to actually pull the trigger so i'm i'm very much in favor of um, of getting training from people who who know what they're doing so as that you become able to to know that when push comes to shove, you will pull the trigger uh, there are a lot of a lot of concerns right there are a lot of reasons to be worried, legal and many other things but Bottom line, you should be able to defend yourself, and that means learning everything you need to know about the legalities and about the, uh, uh, the, the technicalities of uh, using owning and using a weapon. Uh, number nine. OK, Number nine. And uh, number nine is a very simple five words: Keep clean. Keep clean. yourself, your clothing and your habitation. You might say, well, what's that got to do with a crisis? Because it's one of the first things that uh, we can very easily let go of. Not getting dressed in the morning, right? You're staying home, you're stuck in a home all day. Hey, you know, if if with a family you want to have a pajama day one day, fine, go for it. But the rest of the time, a schedule is hugely important. Um, During prisoner of war camps, In uh, every conflict we've been engaged in, the uh, books that get written and the accounts that come back to us are that survival hinged on maintenance of discipline and order and schedule. That when people let themselves go, and getting dirty is incredibly demoralizing. So um, it's really, really important. Let me tell you a verse, if you don't mind. Deuteronomy! chapter 23 verses 12 through 14. Let me read them real quick. And you must, this is being addressed to the soldier. You must have a digging tool in your equipment pack so that when you relieve yourself, you can dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God walks throughout your camp to protect you and deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy, lest he see anything unclean among you and turn away from you in a nutshell, even in the crisis conditions of military maneuvers, uh, of combat, you still have to uh, relieve yourself in private, and you mustn't leave the excrement lying around. It must be covered up because God is telling us here of how demoralizing filth can be for us. Um, It's really important in um, At the University of Texas in 2014, there was a lovely commencement speech delivered by a military man, Admiral William McRaven. It became very famous. You probably heard about it. But um, what he said was that if you want to make a difference in the world, start by making your bed every morning. And, And then he gave a really very beautiful speech based on that whole idea. And so, yes, even though we're home, uh, and the, you say to yourself, I'm not going to be even, you know, other than a few minutes on a uh, on a, a video conference. I, you know, I don't have to get dressed. I don't have to comb my hair. Those of us with hair to comb, uh, you don't. I don't have to even put on clothing. I can just hang out in pajamas. Um, don't fall into that trap. Don't let those you are responsible for fall into that trap. <clears throat> Keeping clean yourself and your clothing and your habitation, where you're living, it's really important. Neat, clean, ordered, structured, disciplined, scheduled. Keep operating even more than normal on, if you like, military routine. Uh, There's much value in that. I'm not saying that applies to if you're homeschooling your children. And boy, would I be interested to know whether the hundreds of thousands of families who for the first time in their lives are trying homeschool hundreds of thousands of families who up till now said to themselves well i wish i could consider homeschooling my children take my children out of geeks government indoctrination camps and educate them myself so that i can imprint myself indelibly on my own child so my child will grow up with my values and not those of the geek uh, and uh and they've said, no, nah, I wish I could. I have no educational background. I can't teach my kids. I don't know enough. And all of a sudden now they're saying, hey, we've got a great homeschool going. And, uh, and if people are in that situation, how many of them are going to say, when this ends sooner rather than later and normality such as it is will return, how many people will say, you know what? I'm not sending my kids to Gix anymore we discovered, you know what, homeschooling is a lot of fun, it's satisfying, and it makes us feel good about our lives because our children are not being turned into treacherous little enemies of everything we hold value in, everything we treat as sacred. And that's really what happens. You might have the most perfect set of traditional Judeo-Christian values in your home, You send your child off to a gig. Who do you think has more influence? The teacher that's in front of him for six or seven or eight hours a day? The friends who influence him the rest of the time? Or you for a few hours at most of homework and dinner, which usually devolves into arguing? Just think about who has more impact on your children. So um, that may be a very interesting outcome. I can't wait to see that. That may be very, very interesting. And then finally, finally, <clears throat> the last of the 10 points, number 10, write, 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 write. Yes, use this time to write. Get yourself a notebook, and I'm, I'm talking now about writing by hand. From a cognitive point of view, you will derive much more benefit in what I'm about to describe if you write by hand than by a keyboard on a device. Um, and I know most of us have less than stellar handwritings, but you'll find that it will improve. So devote some time every day to writing. Okay, what should you write about? Well, I will tell you what I believe you should start with. If for derive maximum benefit, first of all, I think you should be keeping a journal. And I don't know if you've noticed, but um, Susan and I have prepared a journal um slight nautical theme but essentially a journal that is designed to help people getting into, into the writing mode you'll see it over at our website at ravidalappend.com over at the store take a look at it it might be just what you need to launch you into something you've been putting off up till now if you are a regular of the show you've heard me beg cajole plead and and, and beseech you to start writing well, I understand. Time is is difficult. You have to prioritize your time. Well, now may be an opportunity to, to do some writing. So number one, uh, journal. Just record each day. You know, think about it. We're living through history. In the same way that history books describe life during the flu epidemic of 1918— History books are going to describe the uh, the corona pandemic of 2020, and you are living through it. Keep a journal. It'll really be useful. It'll be useful to people in the future who you may want to let read it. Just what you're going through on a day-to-day basis. Keep that journal, the challenges, how you're overcoming them, uh, areas in which you're pleased with how you handle things. Maybe even areas, if you're if you're keeping the journal private, maybe areas in which you're less pleased about how you handle it. Lost my temper with my spouse today. Terrible. I didn't mean to. Never going to happen again. You know, this is what people write in our journals. We all do this. And um, these things are enormously effective in Encouraging growth, stimulating our own development, moving us onwards and upwards. In addition to the journal, you can also write about your future and your past. Now, you might think you should start with your past and then move on to your future. I would recommend the other direction. It is tough and it's painful to write about one's past, it's just hard because none of us feel our pasts are totally without mistake none of us have pasts without regret and that's just hard to do it's hard to write about and getting used to writing is challenging enough as it is so do yourself a favor and start off with the future and so <clears throat> um, you know you could even start off so you could write the on a on a piece of paper you tuck into your notebook." Um, what do i hope to achieve in my in the rest of my life Uh, what are the values that are going to guide my life from here on forwards and uh, go ahead and write down the future as you as you would like to see it Um, talk about write down the kind of person you want to grow into talk about any skills you'd like to acquire Uh, speak about relationships how you want certain relationships to grow and develop Or maybe you don't have them yet, how you want those relationships to be. Maybe I don't have children yet, but these are the kind of the relationship I want to have my children are like this. The write that stuff down. You cannot imagine how powerful a tool this is in bringing about realization. Apart from anything else, it also is incredibly helpful for the quality of your life here and now. It re- truly it reduces anxiety about uncertainty in the future. Um, it uh, it helps let you feel positive about stepping onto the path to the future that you want to engineer for yourself. So um, <coughs> make use of this incredibly effective tool. Of uh, uh, what it, what it essentially does is it allows you to team up your goals with your with your actions and that's one of the biggest problems we all have right we have certain goals but we don't do the things we're supposed to do in order to bring about those goals best way to achieve it is through writing defining how you want things to look and and um, and the things you need to do in order to achieve those things so when you've when you've made a real headway on that, then you might want to write your autobiography. Go back and look at your life. This, this is harder, but it's really very, very helpful um, because you, you, it helps you deal with things in the past. You don't need to pay a therapist to listen to you on this. You, don't need, you really don't need to put it down on paper and you would truly be astounded and how helpful you're going to find this to be? Um, Try it. Try it. Talk, you know, talk about your background. You know, from your childhood, uh, mistakes you made, things you did well, relationship with parents, relationship with siblings, what went wrong, why did they go wrong, to what extent were you culpable, Who, who was more culpable, um how do you think things might have been differently how you felt express your feelings to yourself not to not to anyone else necessarily but express your feelings in your writing um as to what it felt like and you can even think of it as an autobiography and uh, you know you may be somebody who's very private and couldn't dream of anyone else reading your stuff so make it private don't, don't it's not for publication it's not to be shared um uh, and uh you know you might you, know, you just might not want it ever to even be found in their ways of making sure that uh after 120 years your your heirs and family won't find it all of those things you know if that's something that bothers you a great deal anyway my friends that is it for today uh those are the 10 timeless tips tools and techniques for tough times Become a generalist. Number two, today's strategic timeline ends tonight. Number three, insulate yourself from public panic and hysteria. Number four, make new connections. Number five, cash is king. Number six, your life and those of your family are more valuable to you than the authority than they are to the authorities, and you understand that one. Seven, you should be able to defend yourself. Number eight, keep clean yourself your clothing, and your habitation. That was number nine. Number 10 is maintain optimism by expressing gratitude in your journal. Write, write, write. That's what you should be doing. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, happy warriors, each and every one of you. You know that I do not believe any of us should be tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. No, we should take charge and that's exactly what today's show was all about. May God watch over you and keep you safe and healthy and give you a wonderful week up ahead, a week of good times with your family, I guess not with friends so much other than uh, through uh, connect through electronic connection, uh, with your finances and with your faith. I am your rabbi. I'm Rabbi Daniel lappen God bless.